Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. All right, well, tonight we are talking about Hinduism. All right, before we get into the actual outline, I want to do a little bit of a review from what we talked about last week because the foundation we laid last week is crucial. So we're going to reiterate some of these truths over and over over the next weeks, several weeks, just to reinforce these foundational truths. Now, we said there are three things that all cults have in common. Anybody remember what they are? Or anybody remember one of them? Okay, they're religious. They, they subtract from, we, we kind of use the word addition, subtract, and multiply. All right, so the, the, the term cult can mean religious. It can mean that there's a system of beliefs. Um, and so all cults kind of have that same definition. But there's three things that they all do to what we would view as truth. All right, they add or take away from what? The Bible. They add or take away from the Bible. Second, they multiply the requirements for salvation. And third, they what? Y'all are looking on last week's notes, aren't you? What was the third one? It has to do with Jesus. What do you say, D? They subtract away from the fact that Jesus is God. Now, this is important. Now, these first several religions we're going through are not as much cults as they are world religions. I mean, these are major world religions. And so the way that they do this is, is a little different. So, for instance, when you go to, say, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, they, they at least value the Bible to a certain extent. They prioritize the Bible. And so when they multiply the requirements, or, or excuse me, when they add or take away from the Bible, they do this by having their own translation. They do this by having their own Bible um, some of these world religions that we're going through, they don't necessarily have a holy book or a scriptures, or they don't even recognize the Bible. They just kind of ignore it. Um, some of these that we're talking about, when they take away or multiply the requirements for salvation, they, they do this, and they'll use salvation in some of the same ways we do, but they add to it. They add a works component. Some of the world religions that we're talking about, they may if they use the term salvation, it's not a salvation that leads to eternal life. It's not salvation necessarily because we are guilty of sin. So these world religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, those are the first three we're going over. Um, we're still going to cover these from the standpoint of how do they add a takeaway from the Bible? How do they multiply the requirements for salvation? How do they um, subtract from the fact that Jesus is God? We're still going to talk about that, but understand it's a little different perspective than, than some of the more Western cults such as um, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Scientology, Christian Science. Some of these others, they do it a little bit differently. All right? So what do you all know about Hinduism? Nothing. We've got, we got an honest answer. Anybody? They worship a lot of gods. We're going to see exactly how many in a minute. Say what? Yeah, pretty much everything's a god. All right. And you say India. Any other thoughts? Believe in reincarnation. Karma. Yep. We're going to talk about those are two, reincarnation and karma are two beliefs. And, and almost belief systems that are prevalent in a lot of the Eastern religions. And so um, we're going to introduce those tonight, and then we'll get into those even more next week when we talk about Buddhism. Um, and then Islam is a little bit different. And then so that kind of gives you an idea of where we're going. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and then we're going to spend some time one week talking about the Quran and what the Quran actually teaches, and we're, we'll, we'll go through some of this. All right, if you have your outline, let's dive in. Introduction to Hinduism. I want to begin by giving you several just uh, facts about Hinduism to kind of let you know how prevalent it is. All right, here's the first one. Hinduism, which claims to have over one billion followers worldwide, is the world's third largest religion following Christianity and Islam. All right, one billion followers. Is that a lot? That is a lot of people. One billion followers, the thir world's third largest religion. So when we're talking about Hinduism, even though you may not run into someone who follows Hinduism on a regular, on a daily basis, understand that Hinduism with one billion followers, this is a major world religion. One billion 
followers. Now, it's, it follows in size Christianity and Islam. Now, what did we say last week about Christianity that we had to be careful that, that we understood how that term is used? You might remember, remember what we said? So what? Yes. Hunter, right? Um, anyone who claims Christ or claims to believe in their, even if it's a different version of Christ, can claim the, the um, can fall under the umbrella of Christianity. So even a lot of these cults that we're going to be going over claim to be Christian. So it is not enough to go up to someone and say, hey, are you a Christian? Why? Well, they may say yes, but not truly believe what the Bible teaches about Christ. So you go to a Mormon, you say, are you a Christian? They're going to say yes. You go to many Jehovah's Witness, are you a Christian? They're going to say yes. There's all different groups that fall under that umbrella of Christianity. So whenever you see, for instance, here that uh, Hinduism is the third largest religion behind Islam and Christianity, understand that the term Christianity, it includes all Protestant denominations. It includes some cults. Um, that claim to be Christians, claim Christianity, and it also includes Catholicism. All of that is included under the umbrella of Christianity. So the Hinduism, one billion followers worldwide. B, there are one million followers in the U.S. One article I read said that 5% of the population of New York are Hindu. That is where Hinduism is growing rapidly, is in New York. Um, one of the things that we're going to see as we go through a lot of these different religions, especially the Eastern religions these first several weeks, is that they are growing rapidly in the United States. Hinduism is growing rapidly. One million followers. That's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that, that's a significant, follow, uh, a significant group. One million followers in the U.S. When we talk about Buddhism, we talk about Islam, growing rapidly in the U.S. Sometimes, though, as Christians, we can look at that and we can see the challenge of that but what is another perspective? I mean, we're in our missions month. So what's another perspective of seeing these world religions and people of other religions coming to the United States? What, what, what's another perspective on this? Opportunity. We can be missionaries at home. You know, sometimes we talk about how much it costs to send missionaries to various parts of the world. Well, in a very real way, God has allowed the mission field to come here. So we are at a place in time where there is no excuse to not be focused on reaching people of different religions, different cultures, different nationalities, they're here. In fact, I'm going to share some stats here in a few weeks. One of the greatest mission field opportunities for the church today in the United States is the college campuses. Because there are so many people coming to college, our colleges from other countries to where you can go on the average college campus and see 20, 30, 40 different nationalities represented. It is a wonderful mission field, but one oftentimes that gets neglected. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a few weeks. So there's one million followers in the U.S. C, 96% of Hindus live in India. And again, these numbers may fluctuate from report to report and time to time, but one said that 96% of Hindus live in India. D, in India, 80% of the population is Hindu. So if you were to go to India as a missionary or you were to go to India as a business person, one of the things that you would find is the vast majority of people that you talk to are Hindu. Now, here's why this is significant. When you go to some of these countries where the majority population is one belief system, what that tells you is that, in, for instance, in India, in India, Hinduism is not just a religion. Hinduism is also a culture. That's why it's so difficult for missionaries to go into these fields because when they go in, they're not just combating one religion with another religion. They're combating one religion and one culture with a religion. And so a lot of people in those cultures, they will claim to be Hindu, but yet have no religious involvement, no regular religious practice. Hinduism to them is not just a religion, it is also a culture. So when you're presenting the gospel in some of these places and to some of these people, the challenge is you have to break, the, you have to break apart the religion from the culture. And in these cultures, in these countries... That is the number one challenge. That's why it's possible to go to a place like India, in a remote village in India, and work for years and years and see maybe one or two people saved. Because you're combating cultural 
religion. It's not just a re- in, in the United States, it's a little different, right? Because you can go up to someone, and they, they can believe one thing, and go to someone else, they believe something else. You go to India, 80% of the people you talk to are going to be bold about the fact that they are Hindu. It creates challenges. That is why we have to be focused on reaching people of other nationalities and other belief systems here. Why? What happens to someone in India who is a committed Hindu who comes to the United States to go to school? Different culture. So they've already left their culture. It is much easier now to engage them about their belief system because they have stepped outside of their culture. That's why it is a wonderful opportunity. In fact, there are movements today that are completely focused on seeing college students saved and then sending them back to their own countries to be as missionaries. Who understands the culture better? Right? Doesn't make sense? All right. E, Hinduism has no single founder. Now, this differentiates it from many other religions. You go to Mormonism. Who's the founder of, of Mormonism? Joseph Smith. Um, you go, you can talk about Christian science. You talk about Scientology. Each have a founder. You go to Islam. Who would they say is kind of the founder of Islam? Muhammad. So all, a lot of these other religions um, have a single founder. Hinduism does not. F, there are various denominations within Hinduism. So even in evangelical Christianity, what we would, we would consider Protestantism, there are different denominations, right? So we are Baptists, but then you also have, what are some other denominations? Presbyterian, Church of God, you have these different denominations. When you go to Hinduism, guess what? It's the exact same thing. There's different denominations and different groups. And so one of the challenges with this study, and this is a great opportunity to kind of lay this out there, is we're going to be presenting basic beliefs, but it is possible that you will run into someone at work this next week and you, who is a follower of Hinduism, and you say, you know what, I was studying Hinduism, and I heard this, and they're going to say, well, we don't exactly believe that. You know why? Well, there's different denominations, There's different groups, there's different sects, there's different movements under the umbrella of Hinduism. Now, a lot of the core beliefs are the same, but some of the specifics may vary. G, the term Hinduism was coined by Muslim rulers in India. Pretty interesting. The the term Hinduism was coined by Muslim rulers in India. In India, and when we get to Islam, we'll talk about how that came about a little bit more. All right, so that's some of the basic introduction to Hinduism. Um, let's get into the beliefs now. All right, let, let's kind of dive in a little bit to what they believe and what they practice. And this, this is the reason why we're doing it like this our beliefs always affect our practice. Always. I mean, if you were with us in our study of the book of James, we saw this, right? Saving faith changes you. What you believe changes you. So when we're studying Hinduism, it's no different. They have a belief system. They have things that they hold to, things that they embrace. Those things that they hold to, those things that they embrace, and in turn lead to what they practice and how they live. You know, you can learn a lot about what people believe by watching how they live. Right? Now, why does this create some challenges? Culture? Um look good? You know, when it comes to Christianity, it's one thing to say what we believe. It's something else completely, completely to live in a way that validates what we say we believe. What you're going to find with a lot of these world religions is they are committed to living in a way that validates their beliefs. So the belief system of Hinduism is going to translate into a culture of Hinduism. This is why it's so challenging, because the culture of Hinduism is so ingrained so that the belief system is seen in how they live. And when you go to these countries, you you observe how they live, but what you begin to uncover is that how they live flows very directly from their belief system. And quite honestly, isn't that how it should be with us? I mean, it should be to where our belief system flows very clearly to where an outsider comes in and they look at us and say, why are they doing this? And they start uncovering things. They trace it back. Oh, it goes back to what they believe. But if they start uncovering things and it doesn't lead back to what we believe, then there's a problem. 
And that's where our actions always show the reality of our beliefs. So how does, number two, how does Hinduism add or take away from the Bible? Just a couple things here. Here's the first one. A, the most sacred texts are called Vedas, meaning knowledge. All right, that means knowledge. Now, again, they don't necessarily um, value Scripture. In fact, let me go ahead and give you the next point here. Um, they say that they have, B, they have hundreds of Scriptures now, when they have hundreds of scriptures, basically what they are doing is if there is a monk that values something or says that something is important or says that something is meaningful, that becomes somewhat sacred to that group. So it is possible in India to go to different monasteries and different places around, and everyone's going to have a different set of sacred scriptures. But when it boils down to it, they have no one, or the closest thing they would have to a Bible is the Vedas, which means knowledge. So if you went to a Hindu and you said, hey, what do you think about the Bible? You went to them and you gave them your Bible. You know what? The, what, what do you think they'll say? Say what? Good knowledge. Good knowledge. What's that? A lot of them would say what's that because it's not on the radar. See, when you get over here to this, this group of Western religions, this group of cults, they're all at least somewhat familiar with the Bible. So if you take them a Bible, they're at least going to know what it is and, and kind of where it came from. They're going to know a little bit of the history behind it. If you go to some of these countries where these Eastern religions are, one, they're not going to have any idea what the Bible is, or if they do have an idea of what the Bible is, they'll say, you know what, that's good for you. They don't value it. They're not going to want it. They're not going to be interested in reading it. It's good for the Westerners. They don't need it. That's kind of the mindset. All right, so understand, how do they add or take away from the Bible? Well, they just kind of ignore it. It's just not important. They don't value it. They don't need it. It's not on their radar, all right? Three, how does Hinduism multiply the requirements for salvation? So this gets into some of their beliefs about God, about a Savior, about sin. So here's the first one. A, Hindus believe that all paths lead to God. Hindus believe that all paths lead to God. And so if you picture a mountain... Picture a steep mountain. In their mind, however you decide to climb the mountain to get to the top where God is, that's great. If you decide to go up one path, D, and Mark, you go up another path, and Jason, you go up another path, it doesn't matter. You all just pick your own path and however you want to get there. Now, there are some foundational things that we're going to see in a minute that they all hold to, but ultimately they believe, you know what, you can get to God however you want. Whereas what we would say, and what, what the Bible, I think, clearly teaches, it's not that we find different ways to climb the mountain. It's that G, God sent Jesus from the top down, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through the person of Jesus Christ. All right, That is the way. But Hinduism, they would, they would reject that. All right, B, well, let me, hold on a second. When they say that they believe that all paths lead to God, what are they saying? Is there an absolute? Is there anything where you can go and say, you're wrong? No, they're kind of leaving it wide open, right? So anybody, any path anyone chooses is okay. So one of the things you're going to see as we go through this, and we're going to reiterate this, is a lot of these cults and a lot of these world religions, they lack absolute authority, and that's crucial. There has to be absolute authority. There has to be something that we go to and we say, we believe this and we live like this because this is what this final authority says. So what is our final authority? God's Word, Jesus Christ, the Scriptures. This is our final authority, and that's why we are so, that's why we emphasize that so much. All right? Number B, they believe that God is one but also many. I know that sounds confusing. They believe God is one, but also many. They believe in one supreme God, Brahma, expressed in various forms. It is in these various forms, it is these various forms that are worshipped as God. There are over, should be a period, there are over 33 million. 33 million forms of God. So, it, so understand what they're saying. There is one God... But this God is re represented and, and demonstrated in different forms. In fact, there's 33, how many did I say? 33 million different forms of this God. Now, here's one of the challenges, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to answer this for you tonight. You're going to have to come back another week. All right? Just kind of whet your appetite a little bit. So you go to them and you say, how can you worship 33 million different gods? And they would say, no, we're only worshiping one God. It's just 33 million different forms. 
And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. You know what they're going to say? What about the Trinity? You say there's one God. What is it? How would you answer that? So what? The Trinity is one. Any other thoughts? You have to come back here in a couple weeks. We're going to dive into that. It, it, say what? None of them were created. So here's the difference. All right, I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer. I can't help it. <laughs> I can't help it. In their culture, every person creates their own, their own God, so to speak. They each create their own form of God. So, D, if you're walking along and you see... Um, I was going to make fun of Clemson, but um, it's all right. Um, yeah, let's say a worm. They, 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 will look, they, they will look at that, and somebody that values that will say, you know what? This is a, this is a form of God. So our, they each create their own things that they worship. All right, so Glenda, you may worship a worm. You don't think so? I saw a lizard out here in the hall a few minutes ago. Jason, you may worship a lizard or frogs. Um, so we each can pick the things. We each can pick the things that we worship. How is that different than what the Bible teaches about the Trinity? Did any of you come up with the members of the Trinity? Did any of you wake up one day and say, "You know what? I think I'm going to worship God the Son. I think I'm going to worship God the Holy Spirit." See, we worship. And we're going to talk about the Trinity a lot more, especially when we get to the Western religions. We worship a God that is not self-derived. We worship a God that's not of our creation. We worship a God as he is presented in Scripture. They worship a God that is of their own creation, and they can worship whatever form of that God they want. If you wanted to worship this music stand, go at it. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. You're getting ahead of me. All right, see. Sin is committed against oneself, not against God. So no salvation from sin is needed. So if, if you can talk to someone who will actually acknowledge the term sin, what they will say is that, well, sin is what you commit against yourself. Now, the reason why this is important is because that leads to the second part of this point is that since sin is not against God, you are not deserving the wrath of God. Therefore, you do not need salvation from your sin and from the penalty of that sin. So if they use the term salvation, it's, well, and we'll get to what, what, how they use the term salvation in a minute, but sin is committed against oneself. It's not committed against God. So where does that leave someone? Is there an absolute? Here's what this means. John, it means you can view one thing as sin and Mark, you can view something else as sin, but there's no final authority. You create your own list of sins, and if you sin against that, then you're guilty, but you're not sinning against God. You're not sinning against the final authority. So as a result, no salvation from sin is needed. D, salvation is the release from the wheel of life, or what's also called the cycle of rebirths. What, what, what's a term here that's important? Amber, you said it earlier. Reincarnation. I think it was you. Reincarnation. All right. Reincarnation. What is reincarnation? You, you come back as something else. If you've been good, you come back as a higher cre creature. If is, is a cow a higher creature? That is higher than a rat. All right. Can't argue with that. If you've been good, you come back as a higher creature. If you have been bad, you come back as a lesser creature. The way that you achieve salvation, or what they mean by salvation, is that you have lived in such a way that you are released from the cycle of reincarnation. So you no longer come back as something else. You become one with God, is the idea. Um, I mean, how would you like to live your life not knowing what happens next. I mean, have you been good enough? Are you going to come back as something better? Are you going to come back as something worse? Are you going to come back as a cow? Are you going to come back as a rat? You don't know. You don't know. 
how does that differ? How does, does that provide hope? Because you live your entire life always wondering, have I been good enough to, to come back as something better and eventually be released from the cycle of reincarnation? Now, this is where their beliefs translate to their lives. Their beliefs translate to their practice. Because the reason why, and we're going to see some of the practices in a minute, the reason why they are so committed to living these good, honorable lives is because they believe in this idea of reincarnation. And they, they don't want to come back as something less. They want to come back as something better. And eventually they want to get released from this cycle. And that is what they view salvation. So if you went up to a Hindu and you said, you believe in salvation, you just left it at that, some of them are just going to say, yes, and they'll say, I'm pursuing it, and I'm trying each and every day to, to get to this place where I can be saved from this cycle of rebirths. And see, this is where Christianity differs so drastically from not just Hinduism, but every other world religion and every other belief system. Is, it's rooted in this idea that our salvation is not in any way connected to our ability to be good enough. It is not in any way connected to our ability to live such a life to where I earn God's favor. What the Bible teaches is that none of us can be good enough to earn that favor. None of us can. So if, if you were trying to achieve, if you're trying to use the Bible, and there, there are people who do this, you try to use the Bible and you try to obey all the commands in this and you try to be good and live up to the standards and the morality and the the righteousness that's presented in Scripture, but in your mind you're doing all of that to earn God's favor, you're still in this, in this kind of bubble over here of wondering, have I done enough to earn God's favor? And if I did enough to earn God's favor yesterday, have I done enough to keep God's favor today? That is a miserable, miserable life. That is why we lean so heavily on the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, it says that we've been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our salvation is rooted in what Christ has done, not in what we have done or can do. Thankfully. Thankfully. Um, e. So when they're talking about salvation, they believe in three different approaches to salvation. Three different ways, and if you can do all of these, fantastic, but three different ways that you can receive salvation or release from the cycle of rebirths. All right, here they are. Number one, salvation by knowledge. And I'm not going to try to read all these words, but if you wanted to Google them when you get home, learn more about them. Salvation by knowledge. This is the idea of achieving union with God through yoga and meditation. In their mind, again, we talked about this a couple Sundays ago. I think, I think it was a couple Sundays ago. There is a difference between Eastern meditation and biblical meditation. Eastern meditation is all about emptying yourselves and be becoming one with nature, one with your surroundings, one with this, this idea of God. Biblical meditation is all about filling yourself with the truth of God and the truth of God's Word. Um, and so it's the reason why you'll see a lot of Hindus spending a whole lot of time in meditation just because this is how they can re achieve salvation. Number two, salvation by devotion. You say devotion to what? Well, to those Vedas, that, to their, what they would consider to be the closest thing they have to their scriptures. Devotion to this way of life. And, and when, we get, oh, when we get to um, the backside in a minute, you're going to see that they have four daily duties. And so these day, their devotion to these daily duties is how they can achieve or gain this salvation. Now again, we have to be careful here because we may look at that and say, well, how in the world could they create a list of things that they have to do to earn their salvation? But we can be very tempted to do the exact same thing. You know what? If I go to church enough and give enough and serve enough, then I'll, maybe God will like me enough to be sure that, he, be sure that I have a nice, easy life. Well, that's kind of what they're hoping for, um, and so we have to guard against that. So salvation by knowledge, salvation by devotion. Number three, salvation by duties, and again, this is kind of, um, we'll tie into these duties here in a few minutes on the back side, but they have these duties that they say, you know what, if we can do these things, if we can prioritize these in our lives and highlight these in our lives, and we can be faithfully committed, and some of them will say, I tried to do at least two of these or three of these every single day. 
It is that devotion to those duties that they think God will, this idea of God will grant them salvation. All right? So let's go on to number four. How does Hinduism take away from the fact that Jesus was God? So Jesus is obviously a historical figure. So these world religions, they do not just come out and deny the existence of Jesus. What do they do? What do they say about Jesus? A good person. Good teacher. So what? A prophet. Islam says that, that Jesus is a prophet. He's one of many prophets. Um, they say that he is a good moral person. That he set a great example for us to follow. But what does Hinduism specifically say? Let me give you four things. A, they say that Jesus was a spiritual person. Is that true? All right. When you, when you hear the phrase, Jesus was a spiritual person, what do you, what, what do you think that means? Let, let's pause here just for a second. What do you think that means? What is the different ways that the term spiritual can be used? Filled with the Spirit. What, Helen? Know God's heart. All right. Religious. What? Not. It could also mean non-physical. Right. It's a. Jesus is a spirit being. So just when they say Jesus was a spiritual person you really have to talk with the person you're talking to and define, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that Jesus was spiritual and that he just had this system of religious beliefs? Because it's possible for someone today to be considered spiritual but not really have access to God. So you have to find out, what do you mean by the term spiritual? And again, this is one of those terms that's going to vary between which kind of sect you, you belong to within Hinduism. B, Jesus is a son of God as are others. All right, so there's a good group of Hindus that believe Jesus is a son of God as are others. What does that do to the, to, what doctrine does that affect? When you say Jesus is a son of God as are others, how does that affect, how does that relate to what we believe? Jesus is the only son of God. What else? Okay. So it, it, it takes away from the uniqueness that is Jesus, and it also takes away, I mean, the question you'd have to ask that is, well, are all of God's sons sinless? Are, are, are all, if Jesus is one of God's sons, then are they all sinless? Because what we believe is that Jesus had to be sinless in order to pay the price for our sin. He had to be this perfect sacrifice in order to pay the penalty for our sin. So, so is, if, is Jesus really the only way of salvation? Of course, they're going to say no to that because they believe all paths lead to God. But it affects how we view this idea of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God as are others. And if we wanted to say what doctrine that affects, I think we would have to say it affects the deity of Christ. Um, it also would affect what, what are different ways that Son of God, can, that term can be used. Can't, can't a... a a son of God also mean that there was actually a birth or, or a created being? Right? There, there are some religions that say, yes, Jesus is God's son, but God created him. All right? That's wrong. All right? They are co-eternal. We'll talk about that more. There's others that say, well, you know, um, God had relations with this individual and then that she gave birth and so, yes, Jesus is God's son, but he was, he, he was birthed, he was born. Is that right? No. That was an easy one. No, that's not right. All right? So th when we say Jesus is God's son, you have to understand there's different ways of taking that, and there are belief systems that ascribe to, the, to a variety of different viewpoints. All right, see, he did not rise from the dead. What doctrine does that affect? All the main ones. All right. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, was he truly God? No, then that affects the deity of Christ. If Jesus did not rise from the dead and death conquered him, do we have salvation? No. In fact, go read 1 Corinthians. 
Go read Paul's writings. If Christ is not risen, then our faith is vain, and we are, we, we're still in our sins. We have no hope. We are, of all people, most pitiful, most miserable. So if you say Jesus did not rise from the dead, then all of a sudden you've, you've cut out the heart of Christianity. If, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then there is no Christianity, and we might as well pack up and go home. That is the core of our faith, is the resurrection of Christ. Because without the resurrection, Jesus is not God. Without the resurrection, we have no faith. Without the resurrection, we have no eternal life. Without the resurrection, we don't even know if we can believe the Bible, because the Bible says he rose from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then, then we don't even waste our time studying the Bible. I mean, it affects everything. D, Hindus believe that all paths lead to God. So John 14, 6, Jesus is the way. The truth, the life, no man comes to the Father except through him. What would they say to that verse? Yeah, they would say, well, that's one way. Um, but it's very clear, you have that definite article, is the way, the truth, the life. So Hindus would reject that. So let me give you some other interesting Hindu, Hinduism beliefs and practices, and I want to tie all this together and kind of show why this is so significant. A, humankind's nature is divine. All right, what would you say to someone who said, you know what, the, the, the nature of all humanity, of every human being is divine. Put them in the nursery for a week. <laughs> what, what would you say to them? Scripture says all oh, we don't believe the Scripture. <laughs> I mean, watch the news. So here's what they would say. I mean, how, how do you think they would respond? Okay, so a Hindu, you're talking with a Hindu, and you're talking about our natures, because we, we believe, and we'll talk about what the Bible teaches about our nature in a minute, but you, you, you point to them and say, do you not watch the news? What would they say to you? Corrupted by culture, not trying hard enough. You know what? That person, they're going to come back as a rat. <laughs> or, or whatever else. Or whatever else. They're going to say that, yes, our nature is divine, and that is why we can eventually achieve oneness with God. So our goal, then, our nature is divine, and because our nature is divine, we have the ability to be good enough to achieve salvation from this cycle of rebirth and become one with God. They say it is our divine nature that allows this to be possible. How does that contrast with Christianity? It's because of Jesus it's possible. And if we wanted to take it back a step, our natures are sinful, which means it is impossible to be good enough. So the Bible is clear, Glenda, what you were saying, that we have all sinned. Romans chapter 3 is kind of the, the big chapter on this. We have all sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's, there's none that is pursuing a right relationship with God. Isaiah says that our all of our, the best we have to offer is nothing but filthy rags. So this is the teaching of Scripture, that we have nothing to offer. So we are, are we sinners because of our nature, or are we sinners because we choose to sin? It's kind of a trick question. All right. We sin, we commit acts of sin because we have been born with a sin nature. It's called imputed sin. We have this sin nature. That's the reason why you do not have to teach a two-year-old to lie or steal or pitch fits. And that's the reason why you don't have to teach the rest of us, all of us, to. we all have this tendency to be selfish and look out for what we want, right? We have this sin nature, and it is because we have this sin nature that we commit acts of sin. Now, why is it important? Why is it important that we believe that and not, well, you know, I'm a sinner because I committed acts of sin? Why does that distinction matter? It may not seem like a big deal, but it's crucial. See, if you think you are a sinner because you commit acts of sin, then all you need to do is go to the self-help section at the nearest bookstore, get the books, improve yourself, and you can eventually get to the place where you are no longer struggle with sin. But the reality is, and this is clear in Scripture, is that we sin because we have this sin nature. So no matter how hard you try, can you ever stop sinning? 
No, through Christ's help, you can grow in godliness, you can mature in your faith, you can get to where you sin less, but this is why Jesus is needed. That's why we need a Savior. Because of our sin nature, we will sin. Because of our sin nature, our heart is dark. Because of our sin nature, we need a Savior because we cannot cleanse ourselves. That order is crucial. So the next time someone says, why are you a sinner? It is not just because you sin. That's part of it. But it is also because you have a sin nature. Your sin nature is why you sin. All right? Um, so they would say humankind's nature is divine, where we, are, we believe the Bible teaches very clearly that our nature is sinful. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? All right, B, the cause of all suffering is ego. And in a way, there, there, there's a lot of truth in this, right? There's a lot of truth in this. Pride. We would say, and I, or I would say, that at the, if you boil down to the root of most sin in people's lives, pride is kind of going to be that foundation. Pride uh, reveals itself in so many different ways in our lives. But they would say the cause of all suffering is ego. If we would all simply let go of our egos and look out for everyone else, the world would be a better place. In a lot of ways, the world would be a better place. Um, but that's not the cause of all suffering. What is the cause of all suffering? Ultimately, it's sin. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. You see the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3. And you see the, the ramifications that have taken place not just in the human heart, but in all of creation as a result of sin. Sin is the root cause. And what we would say is, yeah, ego is a big problem, but what's ego? Sin. So it's going to keep coming back to sin. All right, C, they believe in reincarnation. We've already talked about this. You're, if, if, you, if you get to the end of your life, you die, you lived a good life, you can come back as something better, but the goal is eventually to live in such a way that you are released from the cycle of rebirths or the cycle of reincarnation. D, they believe in karma. They believe in karma. Who can tell me what karma is? What goes around comes around. Now, if y'all believed in karma, how would your day be tomorrow? <laughs> Wonderful. Liar. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You control your own destiny. If you want to have a great day tomorrow, guess what? That's not just about tomorrow. I mean, the, the, the karma may come back. It may be down the road a ways, but it will come back. And if you've been horrible, it's going to come back, and if you've been great, it's going to come back. But ultimately, it's this whole idea that you control your own destiny. Um, I actually believe that Christian, many Christians unknowingly believe in this idea of karma. They, they, in their own way, and I've mentioned this before, in their own way, believe that if I go to church faithfully, and I give, and I serve, and I try to be involved in sharing my faith, inviting other people. If I do all these things, then God owes me. And God's going to make my life comfortable, and God's going to give me an easy life. That is why. You say, how do you know that? Because I have talked to so many people who have experienced tragedy, and you know what they're saying in the midst of the tragedy? Look at all these things I've done. I mean, I thought that God would spare me because I, I, I was faithful, and I gave, and I served, and I did all of these things. Why is this happening? And in their mind, they may not connect the dots, but in my mind, what I'm hearing is you believe in Christian karma. You think that because you've done all of these things, God owes you. And that is simply not the teaching of Scripture. That is not the pattern of church history. Go to read sometime the last quarter, the last portion of Hebrews chapter 11. And you see all these Christians who are being sawn asunder and thrown to wild animals and are hiding in caves and are beaten and crucified and whipped. And then it concludes, the author concludes that section and says these were counted worthy. These were counted faithful. You know what they're saying? Sometimes God's purpose is more, more evident, more important than some of the circumstances we go through. You are not guaranteed a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. I figured it'd be an amen there somewhere. I'm like, I can testify to that. We're not guaranteed any of that. The Bible doesn't guarantee any of that. So this idea of karma, we have to be careful that we don't subconsciously practice that in our own lives. E, 
Interesting fact, marriages are typically arranged after consultation with horoscopes. How would you all like that? And then they have four daily duties. Let me give you these four things, and then we'll kind of wrap all this together. They have four daily duties. And, then they, and how faithful someone is to these daily duties is what determines how they come back in the next life. All right? One, revere the deities. So what are the deities? Any and everything. So how do you have to act to everything? With reverence. You can't kill a cow. Why? It may be somebody that came back, but it may be a deity. (laughs) Oh, me. Um, Yeah, it may be a deity. So can you destroy anything? Can you get rid of anything? Can you harm anything? No, because it may not be a deity to you, but it might be to someone else. And if you do not revere the deities, then, man, this, this cycle of rebirths, it's just, it just got longer. Number two, respect ancestors. It's almost borderline ancestor worship, um, but respect ancestors. Why? Yeah, you don't know where your ancestors are. I mean, it, sounds, it sounds weird, I know. Your ancestor may be in the next room. It may be out in the field. You don't know. You respect the ancestors because you understand how this cycle of life works, and you don't know where those ancestors are in the cycle of life. I mean, how would you like to live this never knowing? Three, respect all beings. This is kind of summarizing the other. You respect all beings because they may be your ancestors or a deity. So it's all kind of tied together. And then number four, honor all humankind. Something we're going to get into a lot more, um, especially when we get to Islam. And, and we're going to, within Islam, there's a couple different groups. But in radical Islam, one of the reasons why they hate America is because in their belief system, and their belief system in some ways have some similarities with Hinduism and Buddhism, there is really a moral code So what is America known as? What kind of a nation? A Christian nation, right? Now, whether or not we would say it's the same thing that was 50, 60, 70 years ago as it is, we're still a lot of times known as a Christian nation. Here's how this has been negative. And I'll tie this in to to honor all humankind here in just a second. Here's how this has been negative. When people in other cultures, cultures and religious belief systems such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, they look at America and they hear that we are a Christian nation, they see the immorality in our culture, they see the immorality in our movies, they see people such as Hugh Hefner honored, and in their, in their belief system they think, that's Christianity, That is what America is known for, and America is a Christian nation, so that must be Christianity. And so a lot of the the Eastern, and we're going to talk about this a whole lot more, we're going to dive into this more, but a lot of the Eastern hatred for the West is the West being characterized so long as Christian, but the immorality and the the, the lack of, of wholesomeness has become, in their minds, merged with what Christianity is. And again, we're going to talk about this a whole lot more, but when they say honor all humankind, that, that trickles down through all aspects of life to where when they are talking about humanity, they help each other. Um, they serve each other. We're going to see in Buddhism next week that they go to great lengths to be sure that other people are encouraged and have everything they need. So again, their belief system is lived out in their practices. So here's the question for you all this evening. How is your belief system lived out in your practice, in your life? You can go to India, and you can see how the belief system of Hinduism has affected the culture and the practice. You can go to many other Middle Eastern religions and you can, or countries, and you can see how Buddhism has 
affected the culture and the practice. If someone were to walk into our church or to walk into your home, what would they conclude about the reality of your belief system and how it has impacted your practice, how you live? See, the challenge for us all is, as we're studying this, is what we say we believe and what we say that we hold to should become evident, should be evident in our lives. And if it's not evident in our lives, then we really have to take a step back and ask ourselves, do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? You you know how you know that a Hindu really believes Hinduism? How? I mean, they're doing all this. They are, I mean, they teach it to their kids and their grandkids. I mean, most Hindus, one of the reasons why it's such a growing religion is that pretty much 100% of their children follow in the religious footsteps of the parents. You know they believe it because of how they live. See, may we live in such a way that people know we actually believe what we say we believe because it is evident in how we live, not just on Sundays, but every day throughout the week. Let's strive to live that kind of a Christian life. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening and study this evening. God, I pray that as we are uh, specifically this evening learning about Hinduism, that um, one, that we'd be challenged by their devotion and their commitment and strive to, uh, to, to, to get to the place in our lives where our belief system changes how we live. And not just changes how we live, it's evident. We've got to also pray that we would understand that this one billion Hindus in the world, if they were all to die right now, would spend an eternity in hell. And God, that, that reality should cause us to not just look at Hinduism from the standpoint of learning about an interesting world religion, but looking at it from the standpoint of there are one billion people who need Jesus. One billion people who call themselves Hindus, who have said no to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to to pray for their salvation, pray that missionaries would be sent, and that we would even look for opportunities to share our faith as well. So that as we talked about this morning, more people would know you and worship you and live in a way that honors and glorifies you. We love you this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.